0: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for walk qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
1: Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle has been outlining a roadmap to major changes in the county's health system, and it means that the county board would have more of a say. But the president says it's not a power grab. This week, we'll talk about what it is and about some of the other major challenges Cook County and its leader are facing. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Tony Preckwinkle was first elected County Board President in 2010, defeating incumbent Todd Stroger. She has moved towards stabilizing the county's economy. She trimmed a bloated payroll and had some hits and misses when it comes to tax policies. Well, now she is focusing on a health and hospital system that's growing strong but still very much challenged. Uh, also on development in the south suburbs, and always focusing on social justice. We're going to talk about all of that in this half hour. Our conversation is taking place at the president's office in the county building. Tony Preckwinkle, thank you for having me back.
0: Thank you for inviting me, Craig.
1: Well, let's talk about Cook County Health first. Uh, I mean, years ago, uh, for all the time that I've been covering uh, the, the hospitals, they had staffs that were at times dotted with patronage employees. Uh, they often didn't properly bill patients who had insurance or file for the reimbursements they were due. And a lot of people said the solution was a more independent system. So what went wrong?
0: Well, first of all, let me just say I'm very grateful uh, over the last decade for the good work that's been done in our health and hospital system. We've made our hospital system more efficient, more effective, and we've improved the quality of services that's been delivered. So I'm very grateful to the leadership of our health and hospital system, the three or four folks who've been chief executive officers for that good work. You know, but some challenges remain, and this is a transition period. Uh, We hope to have a new chief executive officer on board uh, in the next six months or so, and we've hired a a search firm uh, to help with that. But, you know, we, as we looked at, at the relationship between the board and, and the health and hospital system, which is about half of our budget, $2.8 billion out of our $6.2 billion budget, uh, we said we need to emphasize uh, communication, accountability, and transparency. And uh, we're proposing to add one member of the board from the president's office who would have health care expertise. Uh, we're proposing that uh, there be more frequent and uh, better communication between the Health and Hospital System Board and our Board of Commissioners, and that the Board of Commissioners get to uh, approve the Chief Executive Officer. You know, the the county is responsible for raising mon- money to support the healthcare system for building facilities for it, and I think it's only appropriate that uh, we should be able to sign off on the leadership team. So you know, we're we're talking about, as I said, communication, ac- accountability, and and transparency and making the the operations of our health and hospital system uh, more open and accessible, not only to the commissioners, but to the public as well.
1: But what can the eventual answer be, looking ahead, when the county is still going to essentially bear the brunt of the care for people who cannot pay? That That is unique to this hospital system, given everything else in the area.
0: Well, we face some real financial challenges in our health and hospital system. And the first thing I, I would like our listeners to remember is that there are 68 hospitals in Cook County, 68. We have two of them, Stroger on the west side and Providence on the south side. And we provide about half, our two hospitals out of 68, half of the charity care delivered in Cook County. And that's a, that's a, a challenge for us uh, financially. We've seen an increase in uncompensated care, not the total care we pro- provide, uncompensated care we provide, but the increase alone of $100 million in the last two years. And we've got to figure out how we're going to uh, manage that challenge. And it's truly really the biggest challenge that our incoming chief executive officer will face.
1: But are there any new ideas or, or things that you could try? I mean, let's face it, you've been facing this challenge in much the same way for years.
0: Yes, but but it's accelerated in the last two years. And I think there are two reasons for it. One, um, President Trump, when he uh, took office in 2017, so that's exactly you know two years ago, When he took office in 2017, he he made it clear that he was going to do everything he could to destroy President Obama's legacy. And one important part of that legacy is the Affordable Care Act. So although he didn't have uh, control over the House uh, and the House of Representatives was the source of repeated efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, he didn't have control over the House. But what he does have control over, of course, is the executive branch. And so what they've done is reduced emphasis on telling people about their options under the Affordable Care Act. Marketing, in other words, the Affordable Care Act options. And they've also reduced the number of people in the federal government, they call them navigators, who were assigned to help people enroll and re-enroll in Affordable Care Act components. So they've attempted to, uh, you know, kill it by a 1,000 cuts at the federal level. And, you know, Bruce Rauner, the former governor um, of Illinois, also wanted to reduce Medicaid rolls, an important part of the Affordable Care Act was expansion of, of Medicaid opportunities. Um, he wanted to reduce Medicaid rolls, and so what he did was basically order his staff not to process enrollment and re-enrollment applications by Medicaid recipients in Illinois. I mean, that's just disgraceful, um, reprehensible. I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Anyway, when he, when he left office, there were more than 170,000 applicants uh, applications for Medicaid enrollment or re-enrollment, and, and they hadn't been processed by the state. And we've got 40% of the population in the state. A lot of those folks are in Cook County, and many of them uh, are, are are eligible for our county care program or were, were enrollees in our county care program. Again, a stack of 170,000 applications. So the combination of the federal efforts to diminish the program by denying it oxygen, basically, and the local level, the state level, Rauner's efforts to diminish the Medicaid program by not processing applications reduced the number of people in our county care program. And that meant that more people that we served were uninsured. And across the county, more people were uninsured. So since we're providing most of the, well, not most, half uh, of the charity care in the county, when the, the federal government is, is is reducing support for Affordable Care Act and the state is trying to diminish Medicaid rules, we get we get burned.
1: Hmm. Well, I want to move on because since we're talking about federal funding, uh, let's talk about another issue of 2020 that is going to have a large measure of uh, you know fate, or fate wrapped up in it, and that's the census. Um, obviously, for the county, for the city, uh, the state, it's a priority to get a complete count, but the Census Bureau, which is conducting it, seems understaffed uh and underfunded for getting the word out and how much of a challenge does that make it for local government
0: well i think this is another uh, frankly deliberate effort by the federal government um to reduce the impact of communities of color you know where are the people who are likely to be uncounted they're in latinx and african-american communities so if the federal government denies resources to the federal to the federal census uh, uh, Bureau if it if it reduces the number of people who are um, in regional offices reduces the number of regional offices, you know basically what they're doing is, their best to ensure an undercount, and again, the undercount disproportionately will be in Latinx and African American communities. So, in the county last year, we we allocated two million dollars for census outreach. This year, 2020, another two million. So we've put aside four million dollars to support community-based organizations and municipalities in their outreach work. Uh, and we've we've uh, just I think done a couple rounds. Uh, we have I think 69 groups that we've agreed to fund. Uh, and put out the $1.1 million in grants. And we're about to do another round of, of funding. The grant application deadline is, is February 3rd, so it's coming up in a couple weeks, February 3rd. And uh, CookCountyIL.gov is our website. You can find information there about about our census outreach efforts and, and the application process. But, you know, the census is really critical for our state. Demographic shifts mean we're probably going to lose one member of our congressional district, uh, delegation. And we may lose two if we have a serious undercount. And that, of course, reduces our, our throw weight in, in, in Washington, D.C. And and we've determined that $1,400 a year comes in to Cook County, to various units of government, as a result of federal um, uh, distribution systems that are based on population per capita uh, allocations. And so over, over a decade, that's $14,000 per person Who's uncounted? That are that resources that are denied our local units of government. So we have a we have a an obligation to do everything we can to count everybody in in the county, both for resources for government for our representation in Washington, and because participation is our as our civic duty. You know, we've been doing this census work since 1790 in this country.
1: But how do you combat the kind of fear? That has at least been engendered in the in the uh, Latinx and, and and mainly immigrant communities because of the kinds of actions at the federal level, uh, the enforcement actions from from ICE.
0: Well, that's that's why we're we're funding local community based organizations to do the outreach work because the folks who are in those organizations have contacts with their members of the with members of their communities; they're trusted. Uh, by the residents that they know and serve and we think that they're they're the perfect uh, appropriate um, folks to be out encouraging people to participate in the census because they their word will be trusted Uh, and it's not coming uh, from the federal government and and from Donald Trump who's done everything he can to discourage uh, members of the Latinx community from participating.
1: Do you believe this is going to be enough to to ensure something close to a complete count?
0: We're doing everything we can um as I said, the county has allocated $4 million in resources for, for this census work. And I, and I want to thank uh, Commissioner Stan Moore, who, who has a family history of involvement in the census. His dad has worked for the Census Bureau forever. And he came to me, you know, two years ago and said, we have to, we have to start thinking about census participation. So in our 2019 budget, we had $2 million. In our 2020 budget, we had $2 million for outreach.
1: I want to turn to uh, another mm-hmm. new challenge this year, and that's going to be the uh, legalization of uh, cannabis. It's already legal now, um, but, uh, and it's legalized. The county, among other local governments, are taxing it. But uh, is this really going to be uh, an economic rescue for the very communities that in some ways suffered from rampant drug use and from the war on drugs?
0: Okay. Well, for the first thing I, I want to say, you know, I think there's a, a misunderstanding about illicit drug use. The data shows that about 8% of every tribe, so we're talking about white folks, black folks, the Latinx community, Asian Americans, about 8% use illicit drugs. 8%. And it's across the board. It's, it's pretty uniform. But... In this country, we only arrest black and brown people for drug offenses. If you go into 26th and California to our courtrooms, you see a parade of black and brown young people. Um, And as long in this country as we're only prepared to arrest black and brown people for drug offenses, I think we should not arrest anybody for drug offenses. I mean, that's been my position. My, my support for legalization of cannabis doesn't have anything to do with cannabis. It has to do how the, with how the drug laws have been enforced. We put $700,000 in this budget to support expungement efforts, because that's an important part of the canna- cannabis legislation, expunging the possession records, low-level possession records uh, of folks. Who've been ground up in the polit- in the criminal justice system, and uh, that's for clerks in the court to help with finding people and state's attorneys to help with processing the expungement. Seven hundred thousand dollars, almost three quarters of a million dollars. Um, we are working with through our cannabis commission, which we head up by by Commissioner Bill Lowry, to look at the economic impacts of legalization, in particular how we can support uh, black and brown entrepreneurs, because as you've pointed out. Um, the, the war on drugs has been basically a war on black and brown communities in this country. And we need to do what I can only describe as restorative justice in terms of looking at the resources that come out of legalization and trying to be sure that that black and brown communities have an, a, an opportunity to be entrepreneurs in this space and that we use the resources to support African-American Latinx uh, communities. But this is this is a real challenge. The challenge... You know, I'm I'm grateful for the expungement part of this legislation, but the challenge is, is the economic development component, the entrepreneurial opportunities, and I'm worried that we will not um, do very well in providing opportunities for entrepreneurs from communities of color to be involved in the industry.
1: You certainly have to uh, uh, at least have some raised eyebrows at the fact that the first people in in, by law... Uh, are people who were in the medical uh, end of the business. And, and they're all white. Yes, and, and that is, that is that's, they have a head start. That's got to be a little troubling to you.
0: Yes, and it's an issue that I've raised with um, the legislators who proposed the legislation the first time, with the governor and everybody else I can think of. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that this part of the legislation uh, didn't create a level playing field. It gave advantage to majority firms that were that are already advantaged.
1: Uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about that after this. You are listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about all things Cook County with County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, and we are recording this in her office here in the Loop. Um, the explanation, and, and uh, just last week, uh, Toy Hutchinson, who is the uh, governor's special assistant for uh, cannabis control, I believe I got her title right. Uh, the <laughs> marijuana czar, yeah. Yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> uh, she says, well, in some ways, I mean, some of it is a matter of what you can get past, as is all thing, you know, as are all things in uh, Springfield. But also, she said, these first people in are the ones who are essentially financing the rest of the programs, which is the training, the loan programs, and all of that, and that they're the ones who are paying the fees uh, that are going to get this going. Does that make sense? And what can you do to make sure that there is some equity at the end of the road?
0: First of all, I consider Toy Hutchinson a friend that I have great respect for. And secondly, I'm well aware that, you know... (laughs) um, Democracy is making sausage, <laughs> and <laughs> sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes uh, the, the the legislation that emerges from that sausage making process isn't ideal. Uh, I continue to be concerned about the equity uh, aspect of ownership, distribution, and retail growth, re- distribution uh, and retail, and um, I'm not um, convinced by that optimistic. Uh, view of the world, that there will, in fact, be opportunities either presently or down the road for black and brown entrepreneurs.
1: Um, Is there anything that local government, uh, county, at the county level, I know at the city level, they tried to, some aldermen tried to delay the entire rollout until this matter was addressed, but is there anything from this point forward that can be done from the local level to encourage or force Equity.
0: We we have a cannabis commission, and uh, it's just been created. Again, Commissioner Lowry is our is our county commissioner representative on that uh, entity, and that's one of the charges that they have to try to look at the equity issue. Now, local units of government can't charge a tax on marijuana until July one. So, the first six months, the only taxes on the only taxes on marijuana will be the state tax. So we have six months to kind of try to figure out how we're going to address some of the equity challenges that uh, I've just talked about. And I'm hopeful that we can come up with some innovative ideas. But the fact that we that we can't collect the money until July 1st anyway gives us a little bit of breathing space uh, to try to figure out if there are things that we can do to be supportive of entrepreneurs of color.
1: Um, another, uh, issue of, uh, of, of justice that has been percolating between the city and the county. Uh, I just want to get a status <laughs> report is, I guess, essentially on, uh, if there's been any progress or of resolving, uh, differences between the city and officials who are saying, uh, too many people are being set free who might be dangerous to community. And, uh, from the, uh, county and and state's attorney side saying we can't keep so many low-level accused drug users or, or, uh, you know, in jail while they're awaiting trial?
0: Well, first of all, let me me be clear. The county's efforts to reduce the population in the jail have been focused on nonviolent offenders. We're talking about people accused of low-level drug possession, of shoplifting, of not paying their child support. These are the people who we've focused on in our efforts to reduce reliance on cash bond and ensure that people who are accused but not convicted of nonviolent crimes get to spend the time between their arrest and the disposition of their case in their community, going to work, going to school, whatever. Because, you know, historically in this country, our jails have been full of black and brown poor people. They're poor houses, Um, And we've worked on reducing cash bonds so that we can enable poor people to have the same presumption of innocence and right to be at liberty uh, that rich people have. (laughs) All right. So our focus, the first thing is our focus is on nonviolent crimes. And the second thing is I think it's important for people to understand that there's been an eightfold increase in the number of people who've been held in the jail without bond as we've pursued uh, criminal justice reform an eight-fold increase. It went from 1% to 8%. Why? Because what we're looking at now is not your ability to pay bond, but your danger to yourself or your community. Now, I would argue that somebody who's accused of shoplifting a couple bars of soap, and people get arrested for this, doesn't need to be in jail between the time they're arrested and the time their case is disposed of. And, and frankly, that's what we were doing. We were putting people in jail and keeping them in jail for weeks or months for low-level petty crimes, what I would call, you know, nuisance crimes. You know, not quite spitting on the sidewalk, but, you know, shooting dice on the sidewalk, and, you know, as I said, stealing a couple bars of soap. That doesn't make sense to me, the to pe- people who are accused of those crimes in jail. And, and when we focus on the most serious crimes, as I said, what we've seen is a dramatic increase in the number of people who, no matter how rich they are, can't get bond because we've determined that they're a danger to the community. So our efforts to reduce the jail population have been successful. We've focused on nonviolent crimes. We've dramatically increased the number of people who can't get bond. And at the same time, over the last three years or so, when we have been most focused on trying to reduce the jail population, both the number of murders in the city of Chicago and violent crime more broadly have declined. So we've pursued criminal justice reform, and at the same time, um, there's been less crime. So it's hard to argue that the criminal justice reforms that we've Pursued have increased the danger to our residents.
1: Um, I don't want to uh, get out of this discussion without talking about the uh, the Southland, the South suburbs, because. By the um, way,
0: before we go to the yes, Southland, sure. Let me just say, um, th- we're talking about government, and we couldn't have done this with the support without the support of all the stakeholders: uh, the chief judge, uh, the state's attorney, the public defender, the sheriff, the clerk of the court. And I'm grateful to all of them for their good work. And uh, the state's attorney is up for re-election, and I hope that she will be supported.
1: And uh, <laughs> and we'll talk more about that some other time. But uh, I do want to talk about the suburbs uh, right now, because they've suffered from, from disinvestment. crime. Disinvestment. Yeah, disinvestment, and could use the positive attention. What has the county been doing since the creation of the Redevelopment Corporation? And I know I was out there for, for that launch. Good. Okay, so... Well, let me, let me just What's talk about how we, got,
0: how we got focused on the south suburbs and the south side of Chicago in the first place. Uh, you know, we have been looking since I got elected at, at regional economic growth and regional economic development. And what we found is those parts of the country that have the least inequality are the most economically vibrant. I'll say that again. Those parts of the country that have the least inequality have the most economic vibrancy. And unfortunately, in Cook County, and in the Chicagoland region, we have tremendous inequality. And that's been a drag on our economic growth, and particularly our recovery from the depression uh, that began, you know, in the 2008-2009. So we focused on trying to do what we can to reduce inequality. And uh, a couple of years ago, we, we began a long-range transportation plan, kind of for looking at infrastructure needs in Cook County. And one of the things that came out of that was that that we really have um, transit deserts. We talk about food deserts often, but transit deserts in various parts of our county, and particularly poorly served by public transit, were the south side of Chicago and the south suburbs. So we have been talking with uh, METRA, uh, our Metropolitan Rail public transit, about increasing service and reducing fares, on the Metro Electric line and the Rock Island line, which are parallel to the east and west, respectively, of uh, the Dan Ryan. And and what we've, we're close to an agreement. We hope to have an agreement uh, in, in the first part of this year with them, which will increase the number of trains on both the electric and the Rock Island line and reduce the fares. So in the city, the Metro fare would be the same as the CTA fare, and in the suburbs there would be a dramatic reduction of fares. And the city is is... Hopefully, uh, we'll be a partner. Uh, we hope that CTA will come on board with this uh, down the road. But at the moment, we're working with Metra, and we hope um, that, as I said, we'll get this agreement done in the first six months. And the county's going to put money on the table to make this happen. We understand that there might be an initial uh, cost to, to Metra to do these things, and so we're going to subsidize uh, this three year demonstration.
1: What kind of progress have uh have you made with the CTA and the city of Chicago?
0: Well, I think we're going to come to an agreement with Metra first, and then we will continue to, to try to work with CTA.
1: Um, is making Metra fares comparable or competitive with uh, the CTA uh, something that could help uh, more people use the transportation?
0: Right. We're trying to encourage use of public transit. And we've, we believe that if we make the fares comparable to CTA fares. And if we, re, if we increase the number of trains, if you, if you lower the price and increase the service, then more people will use it.
1: Hmm. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, and we only have a couple of minutes, is uh, really a, a, an overall uh, thinking about race. Because how... possible is it to make progress on the kind of racial understanding and enlightenment that we keep talking about uh, bringing to people when you have a political atmosphere like we're in right now where people are feeling more uh, willing to say ostensibly racist things. Uh, They've
0: been given permission by the President of the United States who is (sighs) hopelessly sexist, who talks about white nationalists in Charlottesville uh, on the same terms as the good and decent people who objected to their presence in their community, who denigrates and demeans immigrants, who uh, encourages religious intolerance. I mean, in terms of the national leadership, we're in a very bad place. And, you know, those of us in local government have to not only push back against um, those um, nationalist narratives by the President of the United States, we have to stand up for, for racial equity. And, um, we began uh, trying to figure out what we we're going to do in the, in the third term several years ago and pr- produced a policy roadmap and, and the principal uh, outcome of that work was that we needed to focus on racial equity. Uh, that government has been unfortunately uh, an, an important contributor to the disadvantage that we presently see to segregation and to inequality, and that government has to take the lead in trying to address, the inequality, particularly the racial inequality that we see in our county, in our country.
1: Is seeing the city of Chicago moving to do more investments in uh, disadvantaged areas along with the kind of things you're doing in county, is this an area where you expect everyone's going to be pulling in the same direction?
0: Um, I think it's my job as the leader of the county uh, to provide direction and try to encourage collaborations and partnerships to move us toward um, racial justice and equity. Um, it's not going to be, um, there will not be unanimous consent. But <laughs> our goal is to try to get as many folks on board and basically to raise this issue is a critical one that our, that our, that our county, that our country has to face and to do what we can at the county level to try to address it.
1: Well, that's going to be the final word. I would like to thank County Board President Tony Preckwinkle for the hospitality, and thank you for the conversation as well. Thanks, Craig. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's WBBMNewsRadio.com. Just follow the podcast links. You can also find our podcast on Radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM.